0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, we welcome back our friend, the Game King himself, Sean Sands. Hello. And we also welcome back freelance writer, TJ Hafer. Hey, hey. And we have GamesBeat's chief historiographer, Rowan Kaiser. Good morning. So, I have a question for everyone tonight, and that is... Do we like playing history or games sort of kind of about history? Because increasingly I feel the tension between those two things, and while it's certainly a topic that we've discussed before, how games reproduce historical outcomes, how they try to use, like, bring their theme into being through mechanics... I have been feeling that tension a little more acutely lately. Perhaps it's Imperator that put me in mind of it, or perhaps it's just something in strategy games right now. But I'm interested in talking about this trade-off we have between wanting a game to feel historically authentic and believable and getting frustrated when it p- feels like a game has put us between guardrails.
1: Well, for me, it's uh, Three Kingdoms that has really done it because... For the first time, pretty much, there's a total war game that you can actually start to see beginning to have a historical outcome. Um, And that makes, you know, the game more attractive to me, but it also makes me more likely to nitpick it because I'm no longer doing like some sort of fake medieval or pseudo-Roman thing that is, you know the Egyptians are still using chariots or whatever, but you're marching your legions, So it looks nice. i am actually doing a thing where I can start to begin to see this is almost a war game in the way that some of the way it plays out or the way that it could play out.
2: It's interesting for me because I feel like I've increasingly shied away from games where I feel like I have a stronger historical context. Like I, I want, more than anything, I think I want a game that feels historical, but I don't know. Like that's the easiest sort of comfort yeah. zone for me. Recently, like the more I know about it, the more I mean to to Rowan's point almost exactly, the more I know about it, the more I am inclined to nitpick, particularly if the game is specifically trying to simulate a historical process rather than set you in a historical kind of moment and see where your world takes you which is different
3: you know for me i think it's it's more about the like historical story beats and i want those to happen and i don't necessarily need them to happen exactly as they did historically um but you know if you think about like uh turtle Dove southern victory series history goes completely off the rails but we still end up with sort of uh you know two world wars we have a guy who's sort of like hitler who's sort of doing hitler things that to me is like the the ideal historical grand strategy game is that things might not play out exactly as they will in history but it's going to pick you know some some power on the map that's kind of analogous to the historical narrative we're used to and and kind of take things a little bit in those directions like You know, you might have the Protestant Reformation, but if Islam became dominant in Europe, it's going to be an Islamic instead of a Christian Reformation, stuff like that.
0: I think something that I probably gravitate towards myself is I think I like things that I can find aspects of history that I'm familiar with. Uh, particularly if it is a history that I'm increasingly getting into when I start seeing those things reproduced in the game, it tickles me. And admittedly, that is a pretty, that's a really narrow and specific and personal sweet spot, right? Like it's not a useful metric because this is how we end up with games that end up reproducing stereotypes about history rather than actually simulating history. Uh, the you know the perfect example is Company of Heroes two for instance just wants to use history as a theme but it also just wants to reproduce uh, like common myths of the Eastern Front the the most sort of bog standard narratives uh, that that existed about the Eastern Front whereas it's nifty to me when I play a game like Steel Division two and see lots of the units and dynamics that you don't see too often in other World War II games, but that did exist on the Eastern Front in like the late war era, right? When, when you've got these weird mixes of combat units on the field, sort of thrown together German divisions that are literally like scraping the last of the reserves of whatever the hell tanks and vehicles Germany still has lying around since 1940. Uh, it's neat to see that in a way that uh, it, it sort of is more enjoyable to me than these fantasy panzer armies that you get where, oh, it's the Germans in 1944, so there's panthers and tigers everywhere, and of course, there is everyone's driving around in a half track. It's always really cool to me to see a game go that mile to access something specific and maybe slightly less known, maybe something slightly less mythologized. Uh, in, in history, when when a game goes that mile to 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 put that in, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily lead to as we've seen with Steel Division in particular, like a coherent game about history, right? It doesn't necessarily lead to a coherent like overall design that reproduces historical outcomes. It just uses that as kind of a a different kind of flavoring, but it it still may not add up to the, the big picture uh, resemblance you want to say.
2: Well, and that suggests to me that something usually is wrong with this or, or that needs to be tweaked in the simulation. Because I, I I like I like the way you're both coming at this. So I mean the turtle dove example is really interesting. Um, but of of course it's a narrative and an author, and so there's there's a heavy hand there in, in to some degree. But I mean, the best simulations, whether whatever it is, is one where you give it the correct inputs and the simulation outputs something that is both familiar unique like it's uh, i mean taking it down to its base level it would be really bizarre if you played this year's madden and every super bowl was won by the Bengals, right and you're just like okay you got (laughs) something really wrong like maybe one or two just as a as an as an interesting aside but if every time it's them then no that that's that's a problem with the simulation not with the not with the concept necessarily
3: Well, and I think part of that is that when you have especially grand strategy games where like it's this unfolding story that kind of builds off of itself over time, I think you kind of need those flashpoints. You need that Protestant Reformation. You need that Mm -hmm. Age of Revolutions to happen eventually, because otherwise it's just going to get so weird that the, the content designers can't plan ahead for it. And so everything eventually is just going to feel super generic because it's gone so far off of the rails that, you know, you can't really build towards these interesting, dramatic moments that could be, you know, a little bit more tailored and a little bit um, more nuanced in the different ways that they can play out. Um, and it just, you it, like, if playing from the 769 start date in CK2 is a great example because, Europe just always turns into this border gore like pluripolar pagan you know clusterfuck (laughs) like every (laughs) single time and uh you know you lose the connection to the world because you know the stuff from history that you kind of you know like Rob you were saying it it tickles you to have a game reproduce that it's just not there and everything just ends up feeling kind of bland
1: it's an example that I have it just In terms of the game design uh, difficulties that can occur here, when uh, Hearts of Iron put out their expansion for China, I started playing a bunch of games as the communist Chinese in order to see if, like, I could recreate history. And what I found was that, like, while the first half of World War II, I could kind of do the things that I wanted to do when I started getting into the second half of world war two, if I did not have it on the like rigid historical decisions for the other nations, what would happen Mm -hmm. is that world war two was basically already won usually by the Axis. So regardless of my success as the Chinese, eventually these gigantic armies of panzers and Japanese forces would just crush me. So I had to continue playing that campaign on the most rigid historical component because otherwise I didn't actually have a chance. Um, And that's, you know, that's a sort of balance of Hearts of Iron thing where if you start deviating it off that, like, perfect World War II, and this is before they started making those deviations, like, more part of the game where you could, like, set the ones that you wanted, which I haven't fiddled with enough. So I don't know if it's significantly better now. But at the time... Um, any slight deviation made that war not happen in any way that was fun for a game for me playing that. So I had to refuse to let it deviate. Uh, so yeah, there's difficulties from the development side as well as from the player side in these things.
2: What's interesting to me is that the more unlikely a historical outcome, the more a game seems to be forced to... Enforce that outcome. So, I mean, the Reformation is an interest. Like, you could, I think, you can make an argument that some sort of Reformation was in, in, inevitable in in Europe from a variety of points of view. But the way it shook out and the specific sort of uh, set of circumstances that kicked it off that made it, you know, kind of unique to the, what we recognize as history, or the likelihood that, you know, that 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 communist China would uh, would would develop in the way that it did has a lot of sort of perhaps inevitable but unlikely specifics and that is interesting to me that that if you are going to simulate something that feels authentic there are these points in history or these points in whatever time frame you're addressing that feel like they have to be sort of hard-coded in because no simulation or at least most realistic simulations are not likely to get there i don't know do you do you agree with that I mean, this
1: is a question of history, right? It's like, how do you know which outcomes that happened were the most likely outcomes? Like when TJ talks about this turtle dove uh, alternate history book that includes a Hitler-like figure, like, should we assume that there would be a fascist dictator that arose who destroyed a whole bunch of the world because he was just some tin pot idiot that happened to come at the right time of technology and post-war stuff, or was Hitler this monumentally unique figure that no one could ever have predicted? And like, we can't possibly have an answer to that. Uh, So a game has to reckon with that Uh, to go. I swear we have done a variation of this show before, uh, (laughs) because I remember having this conversation specifically, uh, but I have this rule of kind of what what to me makes a really good historical simulation. And it's that if you run it enough times, actual history could possibly appear. And ironically, one of the examples that I give all the time for this before Total War Three Kingdoms even came out was that there are two major things in the Three Kingdoms story that games have an incredibly difficult time recreating. The first is Liu Bei going from being in the Northwest to the center of the map and then having a kingdom in the Southeast, having lost two of those strongholds. Uh, and the second is that after Wei takes power of most of China, the Jin empire comes and takes over the, uh, romance of the three kingdoms games, like only ever had that Jin takeover when there was, uh, really hard-coded events, and even those were difficult to fire unless you had exactly the right characters. And Total War of Three Kingdoms actually uses some decent events to nudge Liu Bei on the right path, but I don't think it's possible to see Jin t- come in, into that game. Uh, so it's better than most, but there's still a weird little niggly thing there that I, I wish was uh, had more potential. But, you know, we, can, we could look at this We can look at a lot of different games via this rule or this guiding uh, principle and see that, you know, some of them are quite good at it and others of them are not. Like, I would say Europa Universalist 4 is pretty good at having the potential of having a historical outcome. Um, Lots and lots of other games are not so much.
3: Yeah, and I think it, it ultimately comes down to me that I don't even know that what I'm looking for is simulation. I think it's more, like, I think Sean phrased it earlier as as historical feeling. Like, I think if you were to simulate history, yeah, you might not end up with a fascist dictator who defines the first half of the 20th century. You might not end up with, you know, a uh, a liberal, violent liberal revolution in the late 1700s. But I feel like if I am playing with history, like, if my goal is to have, like, a historical experience in a video game like i kind of need for those things to happen even if it's like maybe a slightly different spin on them um maybe instead of christianity rising and taking over in the roman empire it's mithraism or the cult of isis or something but i do kind of crave those iconic like mythologized Mm -hmm. story beats
2: Well, yeah, and I I also want to be, and and often, and I think EU4 is another good example of this for, for me, often want to see if I can resist those historical, uh right. To, 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 to prevent the reformation or prevent the rise of fascism in, in, in Germany or whatever it is. Like, and so the, the times I get frustrated are also when it is too hard coded, when it is too enforced that, no, you have to have this because we don't know how to tell this story through this game without this. Um, and yeah, a lot of my favorite games are games where in the right conditions, it can simulate something like history. But if I am actively a antagonist to that, that, that is also an option.
1: Yeah. Is, it, it's the potential for it. It doesn't have to happen all the time. It shouldn't happen all right. the time. That's, that's an entirely different problem that can occur.
0: I think one of the things maybe I'm looking for is maybe this is almost too... This is dangerous to leave just to the systems and mechanics to drive it that maybe what you also want, if you want to create something that's a little more flexible in this way, is a game that also has theories of alternate history that it begins yes. to like play into. Like, I think the Hearts yeah. of Iron example is really interesting because I also remember when the game first came out, I it was a weird feeling because there was a point where I felt like I had run so many, like, slightly different versions of World War II, and it was fun, but there was a point where I was kind of getting a little bit done with that, and I was losing a little bit of interest with it. But every time, I basically said, okay, we're going to take the historical decision, uh, you know, railroading off, and we're going to start the clock in uh, 33, right? Right or is it 36 it's 36 Six. yeah so we're gonna start the clock in 36 and whatever you know whatever happens with all these whatever all these actors do that's the way we're going to play it and it did generate a lot of unexpected things but it didn't generate i think to your experience Rowan, it didn't generate world war twos that were interesting to me it generated a lot of lopsided outcomes that caused some strange snowballing in places, but also just generated a lot of frustrating... Hearts of Iron is a game that really only works when you have mass mass war between great powers on an industrial scale. If that's not happening, the game is kind of a, a fizzle, right? It just doesn't really take off. And it seems to me... I also haven't played too much of the, the recent stuff... But it does interest me now that the approach they seem to be taking is this idea of, okay, well... And I actually think I might be seeing some of this feeding back into EU4 at this late stage, but you're seeing now the game being designed around these alternate lines of, okay, well, here's another way things can play out. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that now, like, if that that stuff is appearing in the game, there's probably also some scripting or AI signposting to help that game fall on uh, like like change tracks if certain conditions are met, which
2: seems well, which seems like an interesting approach i I'd even argue that i mean to your point of hard coding some sort of specific alternate outcomes like that's that's the decision trees to me in the Hearts of Iron Four, right? It is specifically laid out as this country: Do you want to take the fascist path? Do you want to take the communist path? Do you want to take the the you know freedom path? And so it's almost baked in, I think, in, into some key decision points in those 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 decision trees for your, for your major powers. And if you turn off that historical component, then they're kind of free to go whichever direction they want.
1: It's increasingly done that way, but I think the original version, to Rob's point, was not terribly right. good at that. Yeah, uh, I think that's it that's parti- fair. It particularly the idea of the detail of the alternate path. I think yeah. that's an important idea because like, when you are playing a typical kind of historical strategy game, uh, the longer you stay on the historical path, the more detailed the yes. incidents you have are. Mm-hmm. When you're not doing that, uh, it tends to just kind of be a bunch of stuff that happens. And um when Hearts of Iron 4 came out, all the detail was in the historical paths. Like, you could turn France communist and that was kind of fun,
2: but all bets were off at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's just like you're, you might get a war that totally fizzles. Like I turned France communist in an early Hearts of Iron 4 game, allied with the Soviets. The Germans were down their path of just normally declaring war on France in 1940. The Soviets came in and stomped them. The end. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was not a terribly fun game, although it was entertaining for the first few hours. Uh, and this is the point where I would like TJ to talk about Kaiserreich.
3: Yeah, well Kaiserreich is like the ultimate <laughs> extrapolation of this idea and <laughs> that they have gone in with just an incredible level of detail to handcraft an alternate history scenario um in a way that I don't think you could ever really generate anything even close to it dynamically um you know by importing your save from Victoria 2 or something like that um where you know they ask a historical question and it very is like, very much is like they've written like more than a novel's worth of historical fiction about this alternate history scenario uh where germany wins world war one and like what the impact of that is on the world where you have a 1936 that's completely different from our 1936 um and i think hearts of iron both in terms of what the modding scene has done and in terms of what um the more recent expansion packs and focus tree expansions have done is kind of in a unique place to be able to do that because it does cover such a short period of time. I mean, it's, it's within the lifetimes of people that are like within the lifetimes of people who are still alive. It doesn't cover a sweep of centuries. Um, So you can kind of get into more of this like nitty gritty granular sort of alternate history storytelling and, you know, the butterfly effect doesn't get too crazy if you have, you know, the Kaiser is still in Germany. Well, okay. We probably couldn't extrapolate out with detailed flavor events for 300 years, what the, uh, the impact of that would be, but we could extrapolate out for like a decade or two. What, what, you know, the possible, uh, implications of that would be. And we can write some flavor events and stuff like that. Um, Again, I think the, the one problem with that is, especially if we're talking about grand strategy, it does have you know a, a limitation on it that it needs to focus on a pretty narrow time frame. Um, whereas my ideal would almost be something more like in Hearts of Iron vanilla now, if you have Death or Dishonor, I think it is, you can take Germany down a democratic path but then unless you have specifically, like, set the game up otherwise, that will make France automatically go communist and team up with Russia. So we still have World War II. We still have <laughs> Germany fighting a two-front war. And and just stuff like that, stuff like Lucky Nations and EU4, mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. like, you know, if if we're thinking about Imperator, like, if Rome gets crushed, like, and you want to have a... Uh, an event that represents the rise of christianity it's like check for dominant mediterranean empire give dominant mediterranean empire an event chain based on a minority religion you know within their territory like that is really the direction i would like to see things go even more so than the curated stuff that you see with you know like kaiserreich and the the sort
1: i I just love that tj's Instant thought for making Imperator better would be to make Rome disappear. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> but yeah, to, to get to get back to Rome, I think that's uh-huh. that's like a sort of negative example to compared to Three Kingdoms uh, of, of our recent grand strategy games in terms of the historical uh, guard railing. Or yeah, that's what that's the word we're using: guard railing. Yeah. Um, and that game is about the rise of Rome. Rome is at the center of the map. If you are not playing as Rome, you I mean, maybe it'll be better with that new patch that just came out, but if you're not playing as Rome, you're probably not actually playing the real game. Mm. Uh, And I think that game suffers really badly for it because Rome becomes way too easy because it's sort of on rails to become the dominant Mediterranean power. You get CBs just for walking into a new territory. Uh, and if you're not playing as Rome, especially if you're playing as a super minor power, then you're just sitting there waiting to be eaten up by whoever shows up first. And, you know, that's almost always Rome. And uh I know Rob had some thoughts about this, so
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the decisions they made with Improder are kind of strange. And I'm not talking with the design decisions. I'm not here to be like I'm like I'm not here to drop real talk about mana. Uh that's not my <laughs> that's not my interest. <laughs> But what I do find striking is the degree to which Imperator is about almost this predest these predestination of Rome, and what's funny about it is that it's a predestination that the Romans themselves, when they looked at their history, didn't really see. Right, like the the stories that the Romans told about themselves, which were admittedly state propaganda uh, by the time that the, a lot of these histories were. Were written down and collected uh, for posterity, but it, like one of the themes is, is that there were there were a lot of inflection points where the entire thing nearly crashed on takeoff. Right, that uh, you know, unifying the Italian peninsula in Imperator is a really smooth process. Basically, a lot of the tribes you conquer are cool with it. You know the uh, the Samnites are like, oh yeah, you know we're we're just like Romans. This is great. Let's <laughs> go conquer the rest of the Mediterranean, which is kind of weird, right? Because famously, that's not quite what happens. There's there there are a lot of uh, you know wars of conquest, and then later wars of uh, legal right and status to like create this idea of a slightly more cosmopolitan definition of Rome, and there were. You know, and a lot of it, their foreign conquests also involve so, these. So
1: you didn't just click on each person individually to make them join your culture.
0: <laughs> well, uh, so I like in some places I did, right? Like like Corsica? Are you kidding me? Of course, of course. Like I can't have rebels popping up on an island where I have to no, like get no, a fucking but- transport.
1: By you, I mean whoever was consul at the time.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they
1: didn't just point at somebody and say, You're mine now. Well, Here's that, a yeah. Latin <laughs> phrase
0: book.
3: Here's a toga. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah no,
0: it, it's true. It is like, they're, 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 like the rise of Roman imperator is almost like Pledge Week. Uh, you know, on on campus where everyone's just like, hey guys, we're Romans now. And then like you go streaking into Greece and conquer it. Um, But it is funny to me that there, in in sort of the arc of Roman history, there's this idea that, oh, there were a lot of places this could have gone very differently. There were a lot of places where other Mediterranean rivals or other Italian peninsular rivals could have derailed this. But Imperator... Now, the funny thing is, when the AI AI plays Rome, it does seem to find ways to derail the rise of Rome. But when you play as Rome, there are so many... uh, almost like catapults to launch you down the historical track for the rise of Rome. The game wants you to accelerate and pick up speed as Rome so that your problems really become just ones of... Scale and timing—that's where that's where the game begins to get a little complicated as Rome. But it's just—it is strange to me that Imperator. If I had to sort of like pick on its cardinal sin, it's that it doesn't feel like a game with a strong sense of, or even much of an interest in, an alternate history. Right, a vision of the Mediterranean world where Rome doesn't rise or doesn't rise quite so high, and. I'm never quite sure what to make of that because when I play as other factions I do I still see an interesting game in there. I think playing the Salut kids is you know a little bit touch and go and you still have to be making a lot of decisions in reference to these rising powers across the Mediterranean but for some reason it never comes together in this sort of historical storytelling engine that I associate with say EU4.
2: Yeah. I mean yeah. it feels like it it feels like a, it feels like watching a TV show that is trying to write really well, and it it builds a big cast and it tries to tell us all these stories about the different cast members, but every cast member's story is actually about. The main character somehow? you yes. know what I mean? Where's where it's just what TV show would Yeah. That be? I, 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 can't I can't think, really think of a recent example. De- uh, uh, no, there um, are no recent there are absolutely yeah. no recent examples oh, we could draw from. But it. it is like that. I mean, where EU4 doesn't have to be like that. You can play as a side character who has an independent, interesting side character story. In fact, there really is no main character. That's maybe what sets it apart. I mean, the problem problem decision whatever may just be that it is a game ultimately about rome it just takes place on a much bigger map than maybe it needs to i don't know
3: yeah my my thing on this i've probably said this on like four different 3ma episodes at this point is that at some point in their history the story of rome as an agent kind of stops being interesting but the story of rome as a setting for drama and yeah. conflict continues to be interesting. EU4 works well no matter where you are because it's sort of this the this uh it's it's like a scramble for earth narrative. Like we're we're you know, we're a global society now, you know, the old world and the new world um you know, united at last. What a what a happy reunion. Um and it's like everybody wants their piece of it. Everybody's trying to nail down their piece of it. You're pretty much always going to have credible rivals unless you're, you know, one of those weird people who goes for world conquests. Um, And, you know, there's always going to be someone knocking on your door. There's always going to be someone you're having to look over your shoulder at. Um, In terms of foreign policy, after a certain point, like that doesn't really exist for the Roman Empire for like a good long chunk of time there um you know after the Fun- punic wars and you know especially after you know the pyrrhic wars and you know subduing gaul which you know that was kind of a manufactured foreign policy threat right. i think more than a legitimate one um so yeah the 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 tension has to kind of be internal that your expansion has to be tied some way more strongly into what's going on at home um, I think for that to be interesting.
1: Well, th- this is a thing that EU4 does really well. And I think this is a good example of like both the historic, historic-ish, that like the flavor that seems to be right, and then actually having historical-like outcomes, um, mm-hmm. is that, EU4 until you get super huge does a really good job of trying to make sure that you always have a counter-alliance or a counter-power. Mm-hmm. Like Even before it instituted the mandatory rivals thing, I think that was a later patch, Um it still always had this feel where you have an alliance and your goal is to make that alliance as good as possible and then take advantage of your chief rival alliance whenever that is possible. And... So, you would have, you'd be, you know, going up against the Turks the entire game. The Turks get weakened. Suddenly, your main uh, rival is Austria. And now, suddenly, you're allied with the Turks. And, like, it makes total sense within the narrative that you have constructed because it's like, all right, I have gone up this step. Uh, And it feels natural in a way that Imperator, like, tries to do the same thing with its major, minor power things, but there just aren't enough. Yeah. like uh, EU four, you have like ten different countries that could become the dominant power. It's usually France, but a bunch yeah. of them,
3: <laughs> well, a bunch think, of them
1: have that opportunity. I think uh, where they're powered or not. I
3: think you could get creative with it. Like I think you could make foreign rivals matter as you know this monolithic Roman Empire. But you have to look at cases like Mithridates. Like Mithridates was not at any point an existential threat to Rome I don't think and like the way Imperator currently works the way you would deal with Mithridates is you would go conquer his empire when really what would make him interesting is that you know he could maybe you know enact some sort of scheme that would cause knock-on effects that would cause more problems for you at home and maybe start you know a seed of rot in the empire domestically or it's you know you versus a rival which is kind of what actually happened it's like all right i want to be the guy to take this guy out i don't want this to be this other general who's also seeking glory you know so you can have these people on your borders who are big you know important figures like the ottoman empire would be or austria would be an eu4 and they're not existential threats to the state at least not in like a direct military sense but they could still be antagonists for these stories that play out in sort of more nuanced ways.
1: This is a thing we sort of talked about in our Discord a little bit, where part of the issue here is that The nation state model is being used for all these grand strategy games when what's actually happening is there are various spheres of influence, various governors who maybe have a stronger hold as a personality in a, in a certain area or, you know, a Carthage that is like a trade consortium that sort of coalesces into an international entity, uh, but it always wants to say, okay, this part of the map is blue. Therefore it's Carthage. And this part yep. of the map is red. <laughs> therefore it's Rome. And these things kind of behave in the same way when it, what what's actually happening is a bunch of different points of influence. And it makes sense from a gameplay design concept, because this is a lot easier than trying to figure out like, okay, I have 30% influence over this city state. Can I get them to join my war? Uh, 500 times versus (laughs) you know i'm going to click the war button and then all of my provinces are ready yeah but ck2 has like five kinds of tributaries
3: now
0: i don't think you need to go that far with it (laughs) (laughs) well i actually so tj it did interest me to hear you talk about you don't love the early start for ck2 uh, you don't you don't like sort of the the long campaign the long arc of history that CK two generates if I understand that correctly and I'm curious if that's kind of a problem of who the agents are in CK two right yeah. is that a problem where if the game is fundamentally be dr- being driven by like schools of fish right like even mm-hmm. even if you have a character that is like, ah, this is the King of France and France is a, is a major power. They are still like being driven by the same sort of decision making as, you know, the lowest count in uh, the Holy Roman empire. Is this a problem of, you know, you break away from that nation state model and you say, well, here we have all the chaos of this political order All politics are are personal in in some ways, and the result is kind of a great flattening of, of the action and a breaking up of historical coherence or movement.
3: Yeah, I think that's definitely an issue, especially when you're trying to model the medieval era with sort of typical, you know grand strategy map painter kind of game mechanics and even the classical era I I mean Rowan was bringing up this this up on discord uh when we were talking about Carthage and like soft power versus hard power and how you know there were a lot of times in the medieval era when like coalitions of lords you know who nominally served the same king would unite with lords from a neighboring kingdom to fight each other like it wasn't it wasn't like there was, you know, like a customs station and like everybody had, you know, a passport and, you know, it was, it was like, oh yeah, we're French. So we're always going to fight for the King of France. It was like, no, I mean, we live in, you know, Lothringen or something and <laughs> these guys pay taxes to the German King and they fight in some of his wars. We pay taxes to the Frankish King and we fight in some of his wars, um, but we're not against making alliances, you know, across those borders to kind of accomplish our goals and, you Um, You know, the idea of like de facto independent realms with like the Holy Roman Empire and stuff is something that I would love to see modeled better. Um, I don't know if that necessarily is the reason that I feel like the 769 started CK2 is kind of a mess. I think that might just be more because they've made certain... (laughs) religions and cultures so powerful that a historical outcome is almost impossible or a historical feeling outcome (laughs) is almost impossible um but yeah i would love to see more games take a more nuanced and a more historical approach to the idea of power and sovereignty in general
1: for me the uh the seven sixty nine start well, it has two issues. One is that if you're playing reasonably competently, you will have like an ungainly gigantic empire well before the, the end of the game. Like yeah. I am not I am not a min maxer. Like C K two is bad when you're a min maxer yeah. unless you're specifically <laughs> trying to do that. And even still, like I will have a third of Europe and more kings than I know what to do with uh, by like 1200. So that's, that's a pretty notable issue. Um, But the big one in terms of the historical outcomes, I feel is that it's sort of like an inverse of what we've been talking about, where what, what happens is there are certain hard coded like kingdoms and duchies, you know, the, the du jour duchies that exist and they, flatten out into kind of being a same or similar thing in every game where you're always going to have like a, a, a Normandy that's pretty powerful. Um, and that Normandy might take over France and then France becomes a thing that's pretty powerful where I have seen mods that do things where like whichever duchy is the one that creates the kingdom is the one that gets its name assigned to the kingdom. And like that just, instantly i think they might have actually added that to the regular game now um and that just like instantly makes it feel like hey this is this is a historish game going off of rules that i kind of understand as opposed to no matter how far i play this i'm still going to have france fighting germany fighting poland at some level um and so that, there's this kind of a flavor thing that's really difficult to get exactly right, especially when you're going way, way off the rails. As the longer the campaign goes, it's likely to do. And, you know, that's the kind of an aesthetic yeah. thing where yeah. names and ideas and could transition into three kingdoms. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, I think yeah, there's there was a thing I wanted to bring up a minute ago. And now it's gone, so we're just going to edit that part and. <laughs> uh, Rowan, it's interesting you say that. It reminds me of Three Kingdoms.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so, like, one of the cool things about Three Kingdoms is that when you get to the kingdom status, uh, debating on if it's you or if it's the AI or whatever, but at some point Three Kingdoms will appear, and chances are pretty good they're going to be the historical Three Kingdoms, but you might get a random Kingdom of Yan, which I believe is Gongsun Zan. Uh, that like pops up there and like now you're working with that. And it's like this interesting feeling of like, oh yeah, this could have happened. And it's interesting that it's going in this direction. Like maybe way still exists. It's just a duchy. Maybe they could still win this thing. But right now I have a totally different three but It's like on just enough of a, a guide rail to give that idea of that, that sort of, uh, oh, I recognize this thing is happening—euphoria that you described, Rob. Right, uh, but also the potential that you get something slightly. Or I had one where only one of the three kingdoms was, uh, and what the historical three kingdoms? I had uh, uh, Gong Zan was me, and then um, uh, the Soons made Wu, and then Liu Zhang was the one who turned into the the third kingdom which is very weird because like Wei and Shu were still there they were just duchies uh so that that was a pretty interesting game and it felt right in feeling wrong and that's that's (laughs) kind of a, a thing that i really like about how that game works
3: yeah it seems like soon almost always forms unless you go prevent it since they have the run of things down there
2: i have a question and i've been sitting here trying to kind of formulate it uh formulate it out something i don't know um is there a component of this because it feels like when we're talking about things like ck2 and even and even three kingdoms maybe slightly less that uh we, we get way more into that does this feel authentic for the time but when we're talking about things like particularly hearts of iron four there is these sort of very specific elements that we're starting to bring into it do you think there is a component of this that is more about history than historical games about shared rules and what i mean by that is in modern time there are clearly more shared rules between a greater set of people and i don't just mean necessarily laws though certainly laws there are international laws there's understanding there's laws around war but there's also even going you know into the middle ages on some very specific shared rules about the way war is conducted and what the outcomes are and how peace is achieved and how you know how armies form and fight each other that i don't know as much was necessarily a shared thing when you get into stuff like Imperator Rome and, and this is what got me where I started thinking about it because Imperator Rome feels to me like a game that is built around the modern understanding of shared rules but takes place in a world outside of Rome that does not necessarily have all those shared rules across multiple areas um and does that make it more or less complex to make a modern a game set a, a historically accurate modern game versus a historically accurate Game set in a you know far distant past.
3: So, like, what I guess, what like in an Imperator, like, what specific like shared rules would you um, say that well, I, it acknowledges that that wouldn't exist?
2: I, I would necessarily? No, I would say almost sort of... (laughs) Standard armies. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that is a great example. Yes, that that everything sort of operates by the same rules and understandings of how all these... Like, there are some little things, but they don't feel meaningful. Like, your smallest sort of area in, you know, northern Germany ultimately acts and operates on the same game mechanics as Rome itself, which is part of, to me, why that doesn't work necessarily um so yeah i don't i don't know if it's a fully fleshed idea but is is there something there yeah, yeah i I'm, think so like I, I go ahead
1: just a random example that came up while you were talking about this was uh that gettysburg game that we played a couple of years ago the time yes. turns i think yeah. Yeah. that was that was based on like you threw every division Slash corps in a cup and rolled the cup. And like there were six Confederate ones and seven Union ones or whatever. Um, but it was the Union corps and the Confederate divisions and that just happened to be how they divided their armies. So the equivalent, you know, the division was the equivalent of the corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had similar numbers of brigades and similar usefulness on the field. Uh, it's just that Lee had two corps. That he liked, I think he had three by Gettysburg, um, and, but the union liked to organize it in that other way, but there's still a, a general conception. And when you go to a, something like a Hearts of Iron, everything is a division, uh, because that's the conceptual way that that game is built. Even if they might not get called divisions, they all sort of function the same way from China to the US to uh, Finland or whatever.
3: Yeah, it's it's still kind of amazing to me that Crusader Kings two got it right on yeah <laughs> how armies were raised uh, by most pre modern um, polities and like no game since then has has
0: done it as well. <laughs> so, if I follow what you're sort of positing here, Sean, is this idea that so if you inst- you know we look at a game like EU four. And increasingly it is depicting a world that is being driven by sort of the idea of the modern nation state countries operate in these certain ways. And even if a country that exists in the U4 didn't operate according to these rules, those rules were sort of quickly in like imposed on mm-hmm. those countries w- enough that like, the system still kind of fudges that reality where it it's saying, ah oh, yeah, this is roughly like what uh, you know, different uh Maharajas in India would be would would be doing mm-hmm. at the time. Whereas when you begin talking about different settings like certainly by world war ii uh warfare has become sort of international like it 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 looks like the same thing pretty much everywhere right it's a right the world shares a tech level it shares military doctrine uh broadly it 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 shares an awful lot in terms of how states will interact with each other at this time but if you begin looking like looking farther back you're encountering completely different uh structures and models for a society that the politics of the roman world just do not map to asia at this time
2: they just they they don't you they don't you you virtually have to build a completely different game or at least have the game be so complex as to do that i mean it's it's interesting because it goes back to the simulation question to me for a bit which becomes right i think modern outcomes and modern you know being a broad term not just recently but modern over the last 150 years or whatever um feel much more like mathematical equations in most cases i think outcomes are far more predictable now particularly on a global stage or a very large stage um because the shared rules and the shared understandings and you know, all those things make a lot of outcomes unpredict- largely predictable. It doesn't mean there's not chaos. It doesn't mean there's unpredictability. It doesn't mean there's not surprising outcomes. But when you're playing a game, it feels more authentic for the system, the simulation to create something that feels predictable because we're all looking at it through the same lens. And that makes sense in the setting where I think something like Rome or, you know, it is sort of amazing to your point, PJ that CK2 did as well as it did because that seems like an almost impossible nut to crack and somehow they they cracked it well and it is almost like
3: there's there's this sort of tension that exists there too between predictability and the fact that a lot of times history wasn't predictable I mean like the old adage that you know the truth is stranger than fiction like if somebody wrote history down exactly as it happened as a novel people would be nitpicking it like no that wouldn't happen no that's just <laughs> stupid there's no way no that that sounds ridiculous and i think that we or you know especially me as somebody who who primarily looks at games you know from an, a narrative lens um i do have to check myself on that sometimes it's like okay I'm criticizing this simulation for not following what I feel like is a satisfying narrative structure, but a lot of times history didn't. I mean, probably more often than not, we choose to frame it as a satisfying narrative structure more so than it actually played out that way. So that's, that's yet another, you know, thing you have to, I think game developers have to be aware of. And it's kind of an unenviable position to be in is like, do you simulate how crazy history actually is like how different things could have turned out or do you go more towards creating something that's going to be narratively satisfying for people who are history nerds and who expect a certain set of things
0: and are the like a lot of this discussion has centered on grand strategy as well which i think imposes a great deal of this flattening on its subject right the minute you're trying yeah. to weave together these really disparate politically uh philosophically geographically uh cultures and situations you begin for you know you are forcing more and more of history to fit a template that it probably does not and mm-hmm. it is Maybe easy enough to hand that hand wave that away in a EU4, especially because you know one of the things they did do was start introducing a lot of specific mechanics to different uh you know non non Western Northern European nations. Uh, start, you know they, they started introducing more mechanics to handle uh countries that didn't quite fit that bill. But I do think that there is this tension here between. What's the way to put this? Our discussion is centered on grand strategy, I've, in part because it is a common frame of reference, but also because I do think there is this uh, tendency to prefer kind of. Broad, supersized type of strategy games, right? That mm-hmm. we talk about grand campaigns, grand strategy, uh, you know, grand strategy games. We haven't talked much about like scenario design, right? Yeah. We haven't, we haven't yep. talked much about, and I, I think Three Kingdoms maybe is sort of where these two things overlap, right? This is sort of the, the point where Three Kingdoms is kind of grand strategy, but also it's a really tightly designed scenario um and so it's i think it maybe feels more satisfying because it operates on a scale that certainly feels like grand strategic. Uh a lot of different things can happen in it in a way that feels grand strategic and that there's a huge possibility space. But Rowan I felt like as you spent more time with the game, you were starting to feel that like oh, I see how the scenario is constructed. There are things that are roughly reliably happening or at least are being set up to potentially happen just because of the way this entire thing has been constructed
1: yeah like some of those are really clever and some of them are just you know event chains like i, I mentioned the the difficulty of having a strategy game where you could systemically have Bei go from where he starts to where he ends uh three kingdoms just adds a couple specific event chains where he can take over from one lord and then he Will often take over for Liu Biao when he dies, and that just sets him up to go to the southwest. And you know, there we go. We've got we've got a roughly equivalent shoe, uh, and that tends to work. Um, on the other hand, like it tends to work, but it's not like exciting. Um, on the other hand, one of the the things that I noticed about the game was that the map was constructed in a way where like. Almost none of the lords you could play were in the south. Like, Liu Zhang is in the game, but you can't play as him yet. And I assume this is because they want to do expansions where the southern tribes and southern lords, who tended to come in later in the story, all right, those are coming in later in the game. So there will be an expansion that has uh the Nonmon tribes and Lu Zhang and that that seems like an ideal direction to go. So until they have that, how do they stop like the Soon family from just walking into the south taking over everything and swarming everybody else once they get their uh th- their act together? Or how do you stop like I played a game where I decided to go as Liu Bei since he starts without a um Without a specific home, I decided to go to the south in all these areas that didn't have great powers near me and see what I could do. And what I discovered was they had actually basically made the southern part of the map a thing that you have to develop entirely by yourself, which takes so much gold, you pretty much can't do anything else. So you have to slowly develop the south if you're going in that way. And that makes it so that the south becomes economically viable around 210-215 when it becomes the focus of the war in the three kingdoms. So by having a really tightly put together economic system, they created a really interesting and accurate historic result, uh, which I found kind of astonishing um, and way better than putting together an event chain that says, okay, settle, now suddenly Lume is king of the Southwest. Uh, go with that. Um, so yeah, the, there's, a lot of fascinating design stuff going on in that game that either like works as a Band-Aid or works really, really well as a Band-Aid.
3: Well, I think if we, if we want to look outside Grand Strategy, it kind of loops back a little bit around to a discussion. I don't know if we've actually had it on air before. I know we've had it privately about, um, you know, like super units and like the mythologization yeah. of, you know the King Tiger or like the Anzac infantry where they just kind of have this reputation as being like the, the, the baddest of the bad or whatever. And, you know, you have games that seem to trend towards, you know, playing more to the mythology because it's what people expect. And then you have games like steel division where they're trying to be a lot more authentic in how they stat things out where, you know, some of these expectations might be, Subverted quite violently, uh, depending on what you what ideas you came to the game with.
1: Steel Division is also a really interesting transitional game here because um I, I haven't played too much of two. But when we talked about that a little bit, I thought it did roughly the same thing as one where. It. It feels historically right, even though it's basically just tossing random scenarios onto real maps. But it feels historically Mm -hmm. good because the tactics that you use in it feel like the tactics that the generals would have used at both the macro and the micro level. Steel Division 1 is, you know, tanks bursting through the hedgerows. Steel Division 2 is just gigantic fucking masses of artillery destroying (laughs) everything in a mile wide radius and then seeing who's who's left to move on in there and that's like uh, this is the difference between Normandy and Russia in 1944 Uh, so like even though these battles are not supposed to be specifically historical boy do they feel right
0: yeah I was um, I was pretty tickled that uh, TJ and I were playing a breakthrough map the other day And uh, my beautiful baby boy, TJ, uh, my perfect son, um, (laughs) light of my life, (laughs) deployed all his defenses on the forward edge of the battlefield and, like, just maximized firepower uh, facing (laughs) the German side. And he noted that I had, like, deployed... A really like deep like defense in depth like there were multiple lines of defenses uh, that I'd sort of laid out and one of the reasons I did that because I because I was just reading a book about how the Soviets defended defended at Kursk um and like literally that book is full of diagrams about how different Soviet battalions and divisions laid out their defenses. They're really useful and interesting diagrams to just show, like, how intricate these defense networks were. You can't reproduce anything like that in Steel Division. It just doesn't operate at that scale. But you can put some of these principles into play, right? You can sort of say, like, actually, I'm going to... I think, you know, here's what they did historically. Uh, They committed their armor en masse as, like, a mobile reserve. They, you know, they didn't by 1944, nobody was just sending out, like, a couple tanks to support infantry because that was just a really good way of getting your tanks blown up, but it wouldn't actually accomplish anything. And it was kind of a cool, you know, thing to see in effect where the scenario starts and, as you might predict, like, TJ starts by holding the line really, really strong. And meanwhile, I'm sort of getting driven in in a couple places. Uh, and then the scenario ticks for a little bit longer. And eventually, the Germans just realized, like, oh, here's the line. And we're just going to blast the hell out of it, <laughs> and once that line was broken, like it, you know t j was done like there was there were just panzers sort of streaming through his sector, and I was holding together pretty well just because, yes, I was losing ground, strong points were getting like taken out, but while that was happening, the next position was strengthening, right the reserve was taking shape, and there was something left to salvage. And it was kind of cool to see how that game, despite, you know, a real-time strategy game, an RTS like that is not going to be able to mimic actual tactical combat on the Eastern Front, and yet it is getting at something about the Eastern Front. It is getting at something about the way these units were intended to be used, about the (laughs) tactics that flatter them. And yeah. that is a cool thing to sort of see in practice, because usually in a typical RTS, no, you don't give ground. Usually you you know, you know mm-hmm. hold on to as many resources as possible, and uh, that will reward you in the end.
3: Yeah, if, if I had been in command of the Red Army in World War II, we would have just sent everyone to Minsk and it's like <laughs> if you don't hold this city we all die <laughs> the motherland is lost we make our stand here well that was and that was, so, and that was yeah. the plan
0: in, in 40 yeah. in, in 41 42 it's yeah oh yeah we i'll bet we can get these guys on the front line like absolutely <laughs> let's just you know put yeah. all the guns up front and uh we'll we'll get those pans there's no problem it, it never worked um <laughs> and I like think, real world war ii i learned from that and i learned that i have yeah. to have multiple flexible
3: lines of defense and harass the enemy uh as they come so and
1: you were also yeah. executed just like real world right, War two. exactly I lost this beautiful
0: <laughs> yeah uh-huh. it was yep. it, you know we we all had to sacrifice in the great patriotic uh skirmish map yep yeah. the another so there's an interesting approach and, and rowan you and i talked about this a little bit So, in that touchstone of ours, the Operational Art of War.
1: Ardennes Assault?
0: (laughs) Nope, the (laughs) other one. Uh, No, the Operational Art of War. Because they had these really intricate scenario designers that people could, you know, if you wanted to make a brigade-level war game in that system, you could. Uh, If you wanted to make something that would try to simulate an entire war on a, uh, you know grand tactical level. So basically, you know, run all of Barbarossa. You could also do that in that game. But one of the really interesting things that meant was you'd see different approaches to scenario design. And the scenario that always sort of stuck with me uh, because it was one of the official scenarios made by uh, Norm Koger's team at Talonsoft was the Korea 1950 scenario. Because what they did there was they did have a theory of alternate history but they also like foregrounded in the scenario description we kind of want this to follow a historical trajectory and the way they built the scenario was that the war begins like it it, it did historically north korea is massively powered uh, overpowered compared to The South Korean forces, uh, American forces begin arriving in dribs and drabs. It's probably not enough if the the North Koreans are well-led. It's probably not enough to contain them for long. So the North Koreans will continue being able to push further and further south. But inevitably, there would be enough American forces on the map, and they'd be high-tech enough that you could roll up the North Koreans pretty quickly, or you could just do what MacArthur did, which was land at Inchon and just completely cut them off uh, further up the peninsula and then begin rolling up the entire peninsula and almost to the Chinese border. The, what they put in the scenario notes were once the Americans cross into uh, like as the, as, as UN forces, get closer to uh, the border with China. Every turn, the game checks to see whether or not the Chinese are going to enter the war. And that means that potentially, the like the literal second an American boot crosses the 49th parallel, China's like, oh, it's on. And Chinese forces begin pouring in. And what's interesting there is this was this notion that inevitably they probably that scenario that scenario had a way it was designed like ideally the chinese were going to enter with the americans roughly closest to the chinese border but at the same time they tried to have this sort of theory of alternate history right there in the game where oh you can totally push your luck chinese might not enter so why not like Just go and uh, take Pyongyang. You might be able to get away with it. And it was just interesting to me, this notion that uh, you could create a scenario design where up front it tells you, if you do these things, the odds are history is going to assert itself into the scenario, but you might be able to get away with it. And here are some in-game incentives for you to try to get away with it. And I don't know if it was a fully successful uh, approach. I certainly, like, I had one game where the Chinese entered way too early. And it just was really unsatisfying because they kind of squandered all their offensive power just trying to drive down the Korean Peninsula. Whereas what made the Chinese uh, intervention so devastating is that MacArthur just sort of recklessly advanced into a giant kill zone and, like, had his entire army uh, just basically walk into a massive, like, country-scale ambush and just get wrecked. Um, But it was nevertheless interesting to me that this scenario tried to almost, via the rules incentivize you and force you and bait you into adopting the logic that drove MacArthur to disaster.
3: Yeah. Well, and that brings up a really interesting uh, kind of facet of this whole discussion in that you have these people historically who did not make optimal decisions and strategy players, especially those of us who have been playing strategy for decades tend to make optimal decisions most of the time, but that sometimes leads to highly ahistorical outcomes. I mean, even tying it back to what Rowan said super early on about CK2, if you play from the earliest start date, you end up with too big of an empire and it's not fun anymore. Whereas, you know, in, in history, something that got that big would have probably been laid low by internal tensions or by having just a crap monarch who, you know, you know, Screwed everything up and you know lost most of the crown lands or whatever. Um, you know, yeah, having someone like a Macarthur, um, you know, who who's just way too aggressive and gets himself into a into a a sticky wicket, as they say. Um, and you know, I think developers kind of have to figure out where that balance point is of like how much agency. Do are are we comfortable with taking away from the player to play out this story of like this, this really, um, you know, hot-headed sort of maverick general? I think probably the best way to do it is probably some kind of a decision system, where it's like mm-hmm. we can let him do what he wants for a benefit, or we can, you know, shoot him down at a cost. I think is is generally my favorite way that I've seen people approach it. Um, but yeah, just the fact that a lot of people in history made a lot of non-optimal decisions, sometimes just completely boneheaded decisions. And at least when the player's in full command, that pretty rarely ever happens.
1: Well, this is, this is one of the things that made Crusader Cakes 2, especially at launch before we'd like figure out how it all ticks. So like, inspiringly good was that it was a game that motivated me to make bad decisions Mm -hmm. i remember one of my earliest games i was playing as like a russian duke became a russian king like controlled most of uh the moscow area uh the mongols showed up um right and they're like starting to make their way to the west and I suddenly lose a civil war where I go from being king of this pretty large nation to like being the Duke of a third of it. And so I'm pissed off that these assholes took my crown and I am sitting here making a plan to get the absolute yeah. optimal point mm-hmm. to rebel and take that shit back. And meanwhile, the Mongols are growing ever closer and I'm like, fuck it. I'm rebelling anyway. Maybe they won't declare war. Um Reader, <laughs> they declare war <laughs> it's
2: it's it's interesting because it brings a, a almost role playing game component into it right it is in both of those sort of things you're describing rather than playing the role of expert level strategy gamer you are playing the role of the character or the, the general or whatever in this situation you were describing. And that's, I, I think some historical games, I think some games across the board do that well and others don't, don't think about it, but it's, it's far more fun. And, and I get far more engaged. And this is again, kind of, because, you know, I, I live in the EU4 world. Um, it is very fun <laughs> for me to go in and start role playing into the concept in the scenario that I bring myself in. CK2 is obviously the perfect example. Like, there are so many, there are so many fun, good reasons to make bad decisions in that game, um, and, and that's where it becomes, I think, more interesting because the more technical, the more sort of prescriptive the uh your role in the in in the system is the the less the less incentive i guess there is to to vary from you know the the base predicted outcome um so yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but I, I love that example and love that and love that thought, because I think, I think I can start to tie things together in my own experiences um, of my favorite games and my favorite strategy games, and my favorite strategy situations, whether they were historically accurate or not, are when I was making, when I'm making decisions as the situation in the game itself, rather than the situation of the mechanics itself
1: and eu4 does a good job not quite as good as ck2 no agreed there's a lot more spite in it but uh eu4 does a good job of making it possible to make like understandable bad decisions that a historical ruler might have made yeah uh, with Mm -hmm. with stuff like uh manpower um So you have fought some wars. Your manpower is starting to trickle back. You've got like 10,000, 15,000. You see your biggest rival has a war. You think, okay, I can take this guy before I lose all my manpower. Mm. Uh, And then you invade Russia in the winter or whatever. (laughs) Um,
2: Will we never learn?
1: Sometimes this works. Sometimes you can like go grab those two chunks of territory. Sometimes you lose a pretty big chunk of land you know why it happened. You know mm-hmm. that you should wait a little bit longer. You know that you made a mistake, but because that mistake feels like historically viable, that feels like a mistake that a ruler might have made is like, I need to take advantage of the French while they're weak. Oh, they're not weak. <laughs> I'm weak. Um, like you, you want to sit and live with that in a way that like, yeah, I, I, think, I think being willing to make bad decisions is, is a really interesting framing of this because there are a hell of a lot of bad decisions in history.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, and I actually, the, the most recent rant I went on about this, I actually tied it back into my favorite tabletop role-playing game to be slightly off-topic, uh, but it's, it's an RPG called Fate where the entire premise of the game is that it rewards you with narrative points for making deliberately bad decisions that make the story more interesting. Mm. Um, So it's, it's much more about rather than I am an agent in the world. Like I'm a level 10 cleric and my goal is to make the life of my level 10 cleric as glorious and amazing as possible. It's like, no, we're, we're telling a story and you know, for, to tell a good story, sometimes your dude or your country has to make some bad decisions otherwise it just turns into this you know optimization fest where you're going to eventually deterministically rule the world you know if the clock ticks for long enough and that's that's where i think strategy games should go is is more in a direction of keep things interesting by giving us incentives or by making it fun to make bad decisions by only giving us options between suboptimal decisions that are kind of their side grades to each other there's not necessarily a right answer um as opposed to you know something where the point is to paint the whole map your colors see how many how few years you can do it in see how you know how few men you can lose doing it like that to me is not necessarily interesting because that's not how history plays out right
1: Um, So to go to one of our favorite examples of bad decisions and get one of my pet war games in, since Rob got one of his, uh, a couple of years ago, some of you may remember that I went on a binge of Gary Grigsby's Civil War. Yeah. Or maybe it was War Between the States, um, which came out about 10 years ago. and like I love this. This was like the macro level civil war game that I had been dreaming of. I played it and won eventually as both the Confederates and the Union and like both of them had really interesting different decisions, but as I played it, I realized that there was just well, Gary Grigsby is kind of famous for his gigantic uh war games like War in the East that like simulates down to every individual soldier or whatever. Uh that's not this game. This game is a really macro level civil war game where turns are like every month or maybe it's every two weeks. Uh, There are, you know, like 50 provinces or 80 provinces, something that's really quite accessible. Uh, The thing that I noticed in it is that the rules of the map, the rules of making this civil war be a civil war game because it was so macro scale, got abstracted and like, abstracted in like a general way. Okay. Rivers are really powerful. Therefore, being able to cross the rivers and make inroads, uh, is super important as it was in the Civil War. This is good. This is accurate. Uh, but the way that the states joined the war and the way that the rivers, the Mississippi and the Tennessee River, like combine, You win that game with the Union if you can do what Grant did with Fort Henry and Donaldson as quickly as possible. If you can, like, knock out that little bend in the Tennessee River, get past that before the end of 1861, you're on course to win that war by 1863. And if you're playing as the South and you manage to defend that bend as long as you can, you know you can grind out the West while you, like build up your armies in the east to maybe get a knockout blow so i don't know if that sounds cool or fucked (laughs) it it took me like two or three victories and so you know like 10 campaigns total to start figuring this Mm. out um and there are also interesting aspects of semi-randomness that can help uh or mess up those plans like the, your early generals are shitty, so they might just not cross the river. Uh, or, like, Kentucky might secede if you push too far in too quickly, but that's a risk that you're willing to take because you really need to make that strategic play. So it, it doesn't, like, totally ruin the game, but it does make me say, like as I'm playing this, as I have become an expert that this game has gotten abstracted to the point that I know that this exact inflection point is the one that is most critical for how this game will go. And like, maybe that's why this is not widely considered a great war game, even though it's by far the best grand strategic level civil war game that I have played. Uh, it's still like, it's grandness or it's it the the macro level of it has led to certain rules that lead to a very historicish guard railing that uh you know I just described to you now. Yeah.
0: I don't know, that that does sound really cool. I think a tightly designed like a scenario like that is great, but I think what I what I look for in that case is is there I mean there's always a problem in Once you realize that a scenario is really interesting the first few times you play it, but then you realize there's sort of a key and a lock in the scenario that once, you know, if you grab the key and you manage to get it in the lock, you're base like you're good. Like you've you've solved it. It is it is done. And I I at least find it can be tough to Play a game beyond that point, because then you then you're starting to play the game in your head where it's like I'm going to do the suboptimally because this line of play is a little bit boring. This was definitely like me and Bruce when we played um, Paths of Glory, right? He was like, "Oh yeah, here's the completely like cheesy game breaking way that the, the the central powers can win World War One." Um, I'm not going to do that to you because basically you don't get World War One at all at that point. Like if you you know if you make this move uh what happens from there is almost preordained and i don't know uh how much i would dig a civil war scenario where okay we got the we, we got the key fortresses on the uh you know on, on the mississippi and that's probably it for the south like that might be historical but i don't know you it ends up putting like a weird level of importance on something that doesn't feel like everything should hinge on it right away.
1: Yeah. That's sort of the, uh, what we to go way back to the, like, we don't know if this was actually the key point in the war because the war was a whole bunch of different things. We know that Grant's story of taking the Mississippi and the areas around it in Tennessee and the Mississippi were super important. Yeah and we know that Grant became the general that would win the war because he could figure out how to do these things. But like, was it really that important that those specific forts were the ones that got knocked out so early? It's hard to say. Um, I would say that the answer here is, uh, and this is partially included in the game with things like uh, you can randomize the generals. So, if you know that, you know, Grant is going to follow your aggressive orders because he's Grant, he's not going to chicken out. Uh, but if you press that random button and you don't know that Grant is going to be a decent general anymore, then that becomes more interesting and then you could have you know Mm -hmm. little settings like hearts of iron has or whatever uh you could have let's say kentucky automatically secedes now you have a suddenly more interesting scenario or something that if you're playing as the south like those forts are going to fall no matter what you can't just like turtle up in northern in southern kentucky um it's it's there are options there that could be done, and the game does have some of them, but uh yeah, I think that's that's the way that a game designer can make that not quite so lock and key
3: yeah and and i mean my my thought to kind of bring it back around would be almost like it's it, the other the opposite problem is that from the other direction knowing why things didn't turn out a certain way can be you know, kind of a similar problem in terms of, you know, if you know why Germany didn't win world war two, you know, making a very practiced set of decisions that are, are meant to counteract to that. Um, probably similar to what, what Rob was talking about with like how you can win world war one as, as the, the central powers, like, Okay, I I've I've read a lot about World War II. I know why Germany lost World War II, so I can I can do all of the things that would have made more sense for them to do. And then it's like, okay, is a game's responsibility to just hand you a medal for that, or is it to force you to deal with the realities that were that actually caused Germans and uh, you know their leaders to make the decisions that they did during World War II that led to their defeat? Is that Something that we should factor in as you know part of the difficulty of the scenario design as well, or should it just be like okay, you know you 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 read the book, you know what happened, you know kind of yeah. why it happened, and you can make alternate decisions
0: um yeah, I think for me i I like weird constraints in scenario design, like you know I'm sort of on the record about this a lot as just enjoying sort of having my hands a little bit tied as a player. I think Grand Strategy, I tend to look more for... I like a game that has a sense of grand historical moment or movement that is out Mm -hmm. of your hands as a player. Like, I don't necessarily need the Reformation to, like, happen as a discrete event that changes values uh, on a huge swath of the map in EU4. But damn it, I need something that is out of my control that I can't, like, systematically... The, the range and handle. Yeah, or, or just like, you know, Victoria a little bit with the fact that you're going to get something like the uh revolutions of 1848, mm-hmm. right? But also, like in Victoria, it's almost hard, like not quite hard-coded, but in Victoria, most everyone seems to be able to ride those revolutions out. There are concessions that are forced on you. In those revolutions, uh, the shape of your government changes a lot when those events begin to fire. Uh, you probably are, you know, going to have to make some some adaptations. But what I look for is this idea that, oh, yeah, like everything can just kind of be cruising and, oh, it turns out this is the game where your political order is going to get swept away just mm. because of yeah. that event fired and you're fucked. Drama,
3: yeah, drama comes from being forced to make
0: the best of a bad situation, not
3: continually compounding on success, and any game without drama is badly designed, in my opinion.
2: (laughs) Sure. I I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that's straightforward. I do like, I I, I think there's room also for suspense here, and to some degree, like, this depends, this can change depending on how well you know the game or how well you know the time period, too, but I, I, I... I also, I mean, it it goes back to the old sort of Hitchcock quote about the difference between, you know, having the scene where you find out the bomb is under the table because it explodes versus you see the bomb 10 minutes before it explodes and then you watch the scene play out, right? So I I, I think there's, right, there's got to be this weird balance of unpredictability against a predictable arc of history. So... If I have to prepare for the possibility that the Reformation may fire and it may fire right in the middle of, you know, my, my, uh, my Holland playthrough or something like that, um, then, then that, that, that also is something that really appeals to me. Whether it fires or not, you know, just the fact that the, the arc of history is going in that direction, but will it tip over the balance? Um, those are the ones I, I, I always find particularly that I, I keep coming back to.
1: God, we're going to have to talk about Donald
0: Rumsfeld.
2: No, we are not. Because Sean has to go pick
0: his child up. Uh, man, save. 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 Speaking of picking your child up, how about Rumsfeld and Cheney? huh? Anyway. Oh,
1: my God. Yes, um, <laughs> that... <laughs> The bizarrely great quote about the no known knowns and the unknown unknowns. Uh, That's a thing we don't know. We don't know the things that might have happened, but we can this predict was The, that, the driving instructors
0: happened? of statesmanship. I regret uh, everything. All right. Um, uh, well, that will do it for this week. Also, I've got fireworks going off outside my house. I don't know what's going on. I think maybe something happened with the local baseball team. The uh, sorry that sounded that sounded uh rob the revolution is here finally i'm using pretty low yield munitions if if that's the case which yeah that 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 tracks with how things are going i feel
2: like that's that's right
0: yeah (laughs) oh gee this doesn't look good (laughs) Uh, talk about a historical moment (laughs) all right uh we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion uh three moves ahead is hosted on the idle thumbs network you can learn more about the show and discuss this episode of our community at three moves net or follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash 3ma this episode was produced by alicia acampora and three moves ahead is supported by listeners just like you on patreon you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3ma which uh that also has further information about our super secret discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three News Ahead. The explosions are getting closer. Until then, <laughs> for Sean, for Rowan, uh, and for TJ, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.